Welcome to our podcast series, Who's Universal, which we will be hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference. We, Anna Teixeira Pinto and Anselm Franke, myself, are co-organizing this event together with Kader Atia. Our guest today is Donna Jones. She's a professor at Berkeley English Faculty at the University of California, Berkeley. Donna Jones's book, The Racial Discourses of Life, Philosophy, Negritude, Vitalism and Modernity, published by Columbia University Press in 2010, was awarded the Jean and Aldo Scaglione Prize in Comparative Literary Studies. Her forthcoming publications include The Ambiguous Promise of European Decline, Race and Historical Pessimism in the Era of the Great War, and The Tribunal of Life, Reflections on Vitalism, Race and Biopolitics. With Donna Jones, Anna and myself intend to discuss the nexus between vitalism, life philosophy, and fascism, and the racial dimensions of biotechnologies today. Welcome, Donna Jones. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for putting this together. This is a really um, who's universal um, is a, it's a great question. Um, you know, uh, a wonderful ambiguous question at that precisely because the universal is everyone's and yet we know that it uh you know emerged as uh something that was quite proprietary right um belonging to um uh, europe's gift to the world or well i guess the french would actually want to to, to lay claim to it if you're thinking about certain interwar thinkers like valerie what have you so yeah no this has been great this is really a lot to think about. So. I think I, I would also like to start with that, Donna, in the sense that, you know, like like you just hinted, uh, that the concept of the, the human itself might be actually um, an, a concept operating um, as a whole series of racialized exclusions. You suggest the concept of life equally does so. And that may, to someone who's not familiar with the philosophical tradition and how has it has play, played into the racialization um, of politics and uh, the biopolitics of modernity uh, from the 19th century onwards, um, counterintuitive at first, no? because equal, like, like the human life is supposed to be something universal. Um, something we share. So I would maybe like to just begin with asking you um, how that aspect of it becoming an operational device for um, racial uh, exclusion and even a biopolitics of making killable, how that uh, historically came about. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I mean, when we... Um, I think there are two different trajectories that one can go in. Um, and I think a lot of this has to do with the genealogy of race itself. Um, you know, you have um, conceptions of life and various hierarchies of life that develop, you know, out of the kind of social Darwinist paradigms, right? Um, and in that context, what we have are, you know, certainly in the 19th century, you know, um, uh, ideas of, you know, 
ultimately, you know, who becomes sort of model of, uh, of, of, of the species, right? Of the human, right? Um, and, you know, from that point on, you know, we have various hierarchies um, in, and that are registered either developmentally, right? You know, uh, the colonized world, you know, traditionally is that part of the world that lags behind or becomes, you know, if we're thinking about this in the context of anthropology, right? The primitive, right? Um, they, you know, exist in uh you know a kind of suspended time frame right um one which you know the sort of uh you know the civilizing mission is supposed to either you know never allow them to kind of catch up but nonetheless um you know provide a provisional entry point into um both you know technological progress a stream of progress as it were right um and so this is of course you know a concept of life and a concept of, you know, uh, when I say a concept of life, I'm thinking about this in the context of, you know, again, if we're thinking um, in the 19th century of, you know, we're moving away from, you know, we're secularizing ideas around life. Uh, we're thinking about, you know, um, you know, all creatures and organisms as being somehow, um, you know, part and it's subject to the sort of laws of nature and, you know, selection and development and evolution. You know, within that, you know, humans and humanities, like, you know, again, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a hierarchies and separations that are going on. Um, now, this, of course, becomes, you know, solidified in positivist science and racial science, race science, right? Um, and also becomes a foundation of quite a few disciplines, right? Anthropology, sociology, or kind of emerging sociology, history, right? History, you know, Geschichtswissenschaft, in which, you know, Africa is outside of that and various, you know, Asia is kind of in a, in, you know, kind of um, uh, stuck in a, uh, a state of uh, suspended development, right? Or, you know, you know, has reached its peak, but, you know, now in a state of decadence, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, all of these various hierarchies and Europe at the center of it and Europe as more or less the cap, right? So it is, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, seen as, you know, kind of the motor or the kind of um, the end point, you know, the kind of destination of both progress and of, and of history, right? It moves history, but it's also for, you know, understands the colonized world both in the natural sciences in terms of life and evolutionary development as the place you want to get to. And it's also seen um, as, you know, um, in terms of the kind of historical and, you know, uh, social development, because in the 19th century, you know, it's, you know many you know, kind of certainly uh, scholars of social Darwinism pointed out, you know, nature, the social are intertwined right um there's not even really much of a metaphoric you know uh, separation right um human society is natural society natural society human society right um and so that's one you know i would say that's one branch of the genealogical uh, uh um pattern around race and life right racialization of life the second element is i think occurs in the critique at the turn of the century, the fin de siècle, um, of positivist method, methods, right? And so what we see is a kind of the turn against Darwin, 
the turn against social Darwinism, the turn and kind of collapse of that uh, 19th century developmentalist ideas around, you know, both history and the social. Um, and, you know, um, and the critique takes on a different understanding of race, right? And one could, one could say on the one hand, you have kind of a diachronic idea of it, right? In which, you know, again, the colonized world is lagging behind, but we also have Europe understanding itself in terms of not just incremental product progress, but also, you know, very much like, you know, Spencerian, right? You know, moral progress. We're always, you know, evolving forward. You know, we can kind of, uh, you know, it's very, and it's weirdly optimistic, weirdly optimistic only insofar as, you know, it's one way of justifying, just it becomes, there's, it built into the discourse as a justification of, you know, all tragedies and, you know, kind of backlogging, right? You know, so, you know, workers' oppression, um, you know, environmental degradation, you know, revolutions, all of these things, you know, um, uh, are necessary for the next step forward, right? So, you know, that is built into that discourse. In the, you know, the um, you know turn of the century, what we have is uh, you know, hey, okay, wait a second, there's a critique, right? Where does race fit into this? Because on the one hand, you would think, ah, oh, okay, so this may be the opportunity wherein we might have a kind of an opening, right, in which that very long imperialist, uh, um, uh, that long um, uh, you know kind of uh, 19th century discourse of you know, the lagging behind of the colonized world um, is going to be decentered, dislodged in some way, shape, or form if we have this critique of, right, um, you know, this of, of basic of social Darwinism. But what we have it really is kind of reintroduction of kind of, one could even call them anachronistic ideas around race, right? Um, you know, in this critique of, Sort of positivist ideas around the human, we also have this idea of life as irreducible, right? Um, as um, something that is outside the purview of reason. Um, that this understanding of life and development that we have from the 19th century is fine. Um, it allows us to, in a sense, understand um, life uh, as it is, you know, in order to manipulate it, right, in the nature and the world around us. We can understand it as object, but we can't really understand it from the perspective of experience and living from inside, right? So you get a lot of really intense and fascinating and one could say potentially, um, um, and I, I I'm loath to use the word progressive because it's kind of a contemporary term, but I would say, you know, um, uh, uh, useful critique, right, of, you know, of, of, of kind of mechanical and deterministic ideas about life in the 19th century, right? Um, you know, that in fact, you know, someone like Bexon who's going to be arguing that, you know, um, yes, we can understand, you know, that there's there's another way of interacting with life that is intuition, right? That that allows us to 
understand life in some absolute terms, how it's lived, right? Um, and in this sense, again, Bergson very much like Darwin, right? You know, these are two thinkers who provide us with, you know, very fascinating frameworks that are going to be useful for us, you know, as we carry on. But then what's interesting is the interpreters, right? And so, yes, Bergson offers this uh, along with others. But then we see someone like Sorel, uh, Georges Sorel, who I think is actually, you know, really, you know, uh, the prime interpreter of that form of, of a rightist, you know, critique, right? Um, a kind of reframing of race, right? So on the one hand, we have, you know, like I said, the 19th century framing of race and the human, which is, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, you know, through decades and decades becomes like, you know, ultimately the kind of administrative doctrine of imperialist racism and, you know, um, and, and rule, right? You know, uh, you know, just reforming the savage races. Um, but then in the early 20th century, we have, you know, um, what gets to this rightist take of, of, you know, race as not being something that is subject to measure or sort of a deterministic schema, but that somehow is about a past that is enduring, that, you know, one can tap into, that one can call upon, that, um, you know, that binds, but yet at the same time and constitutes community, but at the same time is unquestionable. It speaks to some absolute um, you know, some absolute um, uh, notion of, of, uh, of community. Now, what we also have in the rise of fascism is that, you know, both the kind of biological deterministic ideas around race and these kind of mystical ideas around race coexist, right? They don't contradict each other in so many ways, precisely because the, the mystical ideas around race are ultimately quite irrationalist. I mean, the thing about Sorel is that he's a very much of a bad faith reader of Bergson, right? And so, you know, what he, Bergson is really just thinking about this in the context of individual creative potential, right? So that individually, right, as individual subjects, um, how we, you know, interact with the world is um a way you know allows us to you know uh, we can tap into you know you know um our you know creative potential if we you know think intuitively right so this is very it's 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 very subject based right and very subjective but for Sorel he takes us into a collective subject right so ideas that so now first of all you know reflections on violence he's thinking about this in terms of the workers, but, you know, as he shifts into his, you know, uh, monarchist, royalist, uh, rightist phase, right, this easily, easily becomes, you know, one, an avenue for anti-Semitism, right, and then secondly, uh, easily becomes, you know, part of kind of a nationalist um, uh, uh, framework, right, that, you know, we can speak about some, you know, basic national character that is, you know, uh, part of this, but it becomes collective, right? So these are the two, you know, um, worlds, right? On the one hand, one which, you know, is still wed to an idea of race science, right? 
um, that you have at the turn of the century. But on the other hand, the emergent ideas of a critique, right, of the deterministic elements of the 19th century, but you maintain, you know, certainly the racist elements, right? So you can have you know, uh, existing in, you know, the 1920s, on the one hand, you know, uh, you know, all these ideas about racial, racial hygiene, et cetera, et cetera. But you could also have this appeal to, you know, um, these mystical qualities of, uh, of, 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 of race, right, um, as well. So, yeah. I would be uh, extremely interesting in this, interested in this opposition between life and reason, because, uh, I think it's somewhat of a false dichotomy that, uh, and that you can see, you know, like you can see how, you know, even though there's this apparent opposition, then uh, Bergson really like, uh, uh, you know, like maps a similar schema as, you know, like the Hegelian schema when Hegel says like nature is fertile but impotent. You have like something similar, you know, like in the Bergsonian schema with this idea that matter is defined by a downward movement. And actually, when it talks about, you know, the violence of life, it's not really life that you would be interested in. It's more like the life force. And uh, there's like a non-identity between life and the life force, right? And that is what can uh, open the door or, you know, like that's, you know, like where one would find this intersection in between vitalism and fascism. This uh, evolutionary schema that organizes you know, like the imagination or like how uh, technology is narrated, resurfaced with artificial intelligence and the way artificial intelligence is narrated. And uh, I, I would be um, interested in hearing your thoughts because I, I have the impression that we are constantly suggesting that uh, uh, technological forms like uh, are endowed with a similar but higher form of consciousness than that found in humans. And that uh, humanity, for instance, will soon be, cease to be the optimal vehicle for, you know, like intelligence to actualize itself or to develop itself. And uh, uh, I would be interested to hear whether you think it's fair to say that these are fascist adjacent narratives in the sense that uh, we are uh, still revolving around the search for Superman types even though this Superman might not take on a human form. So basically, like, this Superman might take on a uh, post-human form, so to say. That's, that's a really, that's an interesting question. Oh, wow. Yeah. Perhaps a post-human in this context might not. I, I, I'm wondering, or I'm thinking about, uh, yeah, I guess a post-human would be, it's gonna like just draw from sci-fi or something, you know, like you know, you're thinking in uh, of um, Neuromancer and there's that great section um, where um, uh, the protagonist case is uh, talking to Dixie Flatline. He's the um, his whole, you know, basically his consciousness has been, you know, kind of downloaded into, uh, um, you know, to into cyberspace or to you know what i guess at that time is like you know basically it's these artificial construct but you know it he also it's like reflecting back on himself and there's this really wonderful moment where um where case asks asks him well how do you feel and he says that's the problem case i don't feel anything right um 
And so um, that, you know, you know, that's a, that, that's, you know, sufficiently cautionary, right? You know, like, um, and that novel also, you know, uh, is, is, you know, keeps a relatively kind of, kind of uh, across the, you know, flats, well, kind of flat lines of debate around, right? Uh, you know, um, you know, basically how the protagonist, uh, you know, desires to like kind of get rid of his flesh. I mean, the body, like it's something that he's, you know, in a sense finds, you know, not just useless, but as well somewhat tawdry, right? Like, you know, it's the, the next thing he wants to do is he wants to kind of live vicariously in this, you know, immaterial zone. But that gets me back to the kind of matter immaterial that I think the post-human doesn't quite you know, speak to, right? Because when we're thinking of the post-human, we are in a weird way, you know, you can move from a kind of Haraway, you know, um, you know, always symbiotic, always corrupted, always contaminated, right? Um, or we can think of basically... Maybe I should have said transhuman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we're thinking the transhuman, though, then we are thinking about, you know, this augmentation um, of the body, um, almost, and the politics of that, like almost very futurist, right? I mean, you, when I think of the transhuman, I, you know, and again, because I've just been spending a lot of time in the interwar years and looking at work from the interwar years, you know, I immediately think of, um, uh, his name is escaping me now, but the uh, futurist poet who wrote um, Mechanical Heart, right? You know, basically it's kind of a pan to- um really. Yes, there we go. Wanting, you know, mechanical heart that, you know, then burns away, you know, the kind of, you know, the residuals of the body and kind of, you know, there's a, there's a real fetishization of um, bodies submitting to the machine and that the machine has some kind of purifying force. Um, so, yeah, so there is definitely, I would say, you know, kind of, there's a certainly a fascistic strain in that and those, uh, in that relationality um of a future technology right that you see i would you know i would say in you know kind of i'm, I'm not well versed enough about you know kind of contemporary transhumanism but it's definitely a danger for sure um uh insofar as you know uh um this the dichotomy between the body and the machine the machine becomes an instrument or at least is believed to be or understood as an instrument of the will. Like it becomes the thing that somehow, you know, it's able to encase it, which is, you know, basically the kind of futurist ethos of technology, right? Um, and same with someone even like, you know, um, uh, Ernst Jünger with, you know, the Arbeiter, you know, kind of this, you know, how do we, you know, how do we fight the communists? We fight the communists by, you know, inviting the machine to, you know, to take over the worker's body, right? You know, this is, we're not alienated from it. We can, you know, we, we, we can, we can attune it in a way that, you know, you know, the will, the German will can somehow be, you know, expressed in and through it, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's definitely, you know, that I think that's that's a residual, you know, um, um, I, you know, from from you know much of uh, 
the interwar year debates around, I mean, you know, um, uh, around the role of technology, right? I mean, so much of the anxieties around te technology um, in the years between the First and Second World War, um, a lot of it had to do with, you know, um, again, that, uh, uh, well, or at least was expressed in and through nationalist anxieties, right? I mean, technology is something that is, again, gets us back to who's universal, right? It, you know, can be used by anyone, right? Um, can be dispersed, um, you know, um, and yet at the same time, you know, nations and want to, you know, uh, to not just claim it, copyright it, but they want it to, in a sense, maintain the imprint of a particular national characteristic, right? Um, and so, you know, I mean, one of the things I've looked at in, you know, uh, just in kind of researching my uh, current work is to, has been a lot of um, strange you know, works that, uh, you know, I'm using about what happens when, you know, the colonized get hold of destructive technologies, right? Um, uh, there's um, one particular, like, kind of, you know, and this is this is old. I mean, it doesn't even start with, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the interwar use is as early as, you know, the turn of the century, particularly in Britain, you know, we think of, you know, Churchill's role, um, uh, in the bombing of the Sudan, right? The RAF, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, basically not just saved, but comes into being uh, um, from uh, the bombing of, uh, of, uh, of Northern Sudan, right? Um, and out of that, you see a lot of, you know, kind of popular tales about what if the Africans could fly, right? And so, um, you know, H.G. Wells, the Lord of the Dynamos is a, you know, kind of a, an interesting tale, or you see other tales around, like kind of like what sort of um, uh, popular science fiction uh, works, like the Sleeper Awake, I think it also has like a tirandur, like a, you know, a, um, uh, you know, um, a, a Senegalese um, uh, um, uh, infantryman, um, you know, what if, you know, they get this technology? Now, of course, that anxiety is something that, you know, is rife in the interwar years precisely because of the Russo-Japanese War, right? Um, but it spreads, you know, throughout. So I think, you know, um, I think we're, I'm a little far afield from your initial question, which was about, um, you know, uh, post-humanism, but definitely, you know, um, the universality of technology is somewhere, you know, submerged in that universality is very much of a, but it belongs to Europe. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that we, you know, can see something of a, of a uh, trajectory, you know, I mean, it's very clear in, uh, you know, in the turn of the century and in the uh, early 20th century, but, you know, uh, I think if we kind of fast forward to um, uh, contemporary debates around technologies, you'll probably see elements of it as well. Yeah, but it, w would you say that that is something that uh, flows from this evolutionary schema? Because of course, uh, you know, like that's also like how modernity organizes its chronopolitics, right? As in, like, uh, 
you know, Western modernity sees itself as being like evolutionarily more advanced than, you know, other cultures, other civilizations, other ethnic groups. And then, of course, like logically, uh, technology will be, and also like this idea of like, um, you know, like this uh, uh, higher forms of consciousness being uh, um, conflated with uh, evolutionary leaps uh, allows you to, you know, like have this kind of like uh, fantasy of technology as something that uh, is not only alive as as what you say in your book is like not only alive, but it's the ideal conduit for life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, I think one of the, you know, really incredible things about a contemporary Afrofuturism and, you know, um, so many works right now that um, are not just only imagining, um, um, you know, uh, futures, um, but that provide, you know, um, that, you know, I mean, techne is just simply how we use things. Um, but that, you know, um, you know, ultimately think technologically in terms of the, what manner in which one must reorganize the world uh, in order for, you know, um, in the context of Afrofuturism, for Black lives to 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 live, um, in you know, um, and you know, one could say certainly that you see this in, as well in terms of you know various you know uh, locations, and indigenous technologies, um, you know, uh, and also futures, right? Um, which I think futurity is a really interesting thing to think through with technology as well. Um, you know, I think part of the kind of underlying critique of Afrofuturisms is against that kind of deterministic um, knowledge that a uh, notion that you have, uh, you're, you're speaking about, which is to say, you know, if you think of the future, um, uh, you know, the, you know that I think the first question is like, there are no black people in the future, kind of thing, right? Um, or if there are black people in the future, so it's sort of like the you know the kind of the, the so-called race problem has solved itself somewhere, or you know technology has uh, managed uh, uh, you know to 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 uh, ameliorate that. But again, it still works along that you know um, tacit evolutionary framework. It's like everyone has caught up, so. We don't have to think about this anymore, as opposed to right, um, you know, uh, thinking a world which involves unthinking that schema that you're that the evolutionary schema, right? You have to unthink it. Um, that's the techne. That's the technology, right? Um, so, so yeah, um, you know, it's that that's that's really a, you know a key. That's a key problem. That's a key project, I think. Um, Would know. be fair to say that you're suggesting that these concepts are not infinitely malleable. I mean, there's so many Afrofuturisms, right? I mean, that's the thing. It depends on who you're talking about. Um, and I'm really just, you know, speaking about it with a broad brush, but um, a broad brush insofar as, you know, again, I've been looking mostly at works um, from the interwar years. And so, you know, that context of thinking, you know, you know, 
Pauline Hopkins, you know, of one blood to, you know, Du Bois is, you know, um, the comet, right? And so, you know, um, you know, these are black thinkers who are, I mean, in the context of Hopkins, it's like looking at the past, right? Like the monumental past, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, kind of trying to figure out how the recovery of a monumental past will then, you know, like, you know, we think about this in terms of like futures as well, black futures, or, you know, the voice of science fiction work, like, you know, the comet and things of that sort. Um, all of these works, you know, um, are more or less engaged with what is it that needs to be rethought, undone, um, in the context of, you know, Hopkins, right, um, rethinking his, what does it mean to be historical? What is, you know, um, what is, uh, what is, does monuments mean? What is, you know, in this context, you know, um, how do we, you know, kind of suture a connection with an African past, right? Um, uh, you know, these, you know, and, and, you know, works that have all kinds of, you know, problematic elements too, but nonetheless, they are futuristic precisely because they are about unthinking, rethinking, and then looking forward. Um, and, you know, these are very useful projects, right? You know, ultimately, um, how do we um, imagine, you know, what needs to be, what could be, how imaginatively we would undo things in order for um, the possibility of future liberation, right? So, um, so you know, in that sense, um, I think that's my very broad uh, defined um, interest in Afrofuturism. If I remember correctly, at some point of your in your book, uh, you um, say that in Bergson's hands, like this concept of the life force acquires a semiotic valence. So there is like a conflation between life and truth, as in like life becomes identical with truth. And uh, I was wondering if this could be also seen as like this point of intersection between vital vitalism and nihilism in the sense that uh, nihilism could be also defined as like the love for the absolute truth, unrequited love, if you will, but love nonetheless for the absolute truth. Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm just trying to kind of figure out, I mean, for Bergson, um, that, uh, you know, life is linked naturally to, you know, kind of an, an absolute truth. Um, is that, you know, there is, hmm, um, I mean, I think in very simple terms, life is is a type of grounding from which um, you have access to um, both well, in time, right? Um, you know, um, and through intuition. Um, uh, to, well, to, to yourself and the, everything around you, um, in that sense, um, and then, you know, if you add to that an idea of like creativity, right, 
um, which is to say that if we're thinking about this in the context of time, what life for the life force uh, for um, uh, uh, for Bexon is kind of more or less that kind of persistent um, possibility that you know um, that just kind of more or less you know endures through all living things um and it also is i would say the kind of the space of creative potential so if you're thinking about this in like you know if you're thinking about this in the context of a critique of evolution you know there are those moments before something comes into being when it could be everything all at once right so the entirety of the past is there swelling as he points it out to it and there'll be that one iteration of the thing right you know here's a flower right and so that flower is the one iteration of it um but there was a moment before the appearance of the flower that all things could possibly happen that for Bexone is you know, not just that's that's that create that's at once a force and it is once life, right? Um, I think for someone like Deleuze would think of that as imminent, right? It's you know, it's sort of on a plane, as it were. Um, and you know, so I think thinking about it in terms of nihilism would be kind of hard because it. For me, nihilism is, you know, a distinct um, lack of meaning or meaningless. Um, I guess it could be in a, you know, conceived in such a way that, you know, this is the way that Bergson, I mean, Bergson has a really wonderful way of phrasing it. I think he talks about this in terms, he describes you know, precisely what it would be like if you were to encounter this life. And he refers to it as, you know, having access to the entirety of one's past. And this actually, that, in, in that, uh, that, 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 that passage is a passage that, you know, like I said, is read by so many like Sorel and others in, in bad faith, right? The entirety of one's past is precisely becomes a kind of, um, uh, the kind of empty vessel that, you know, people fill in with racial memory and all this other stuff. But for Bergson, um, you know, cause it is ultimately a philosophical project. So for him, you know, this is, you know, um, you know it, it's, 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 uh, it's a fleeting moment, right? It's something that you, you know, even if you were to tap, even if you were to experience it, he writes, um, you know, it would still be insufficient, right? Because ultimately what he's trying to talk about is, you know, on the one hand, give an account of the life force, but he also wants to give an account of, you know, a greater truth that uh, we could, um, uh, that we, you know, could avail ourselves of if we were to attend to life rather than to matter, right? Um, and so for nihilism, nihilism, I think, would be one way of interpreting that as it would, of course, be either 
unattainable, almost in a kind of Kantian way, like the new, you know, like, you know, the noumenal, like it's just something that is behind the veil. It's there. We know it's there, but we can't attain it. So why bother? Um, uh, or, um, and thus, you know, you know, what is existence? Um, or it would be, um, you know, uh, so excessive and grand as to, you know, also be equally as, you know, unattainable, right? I mean, if we're thinking of life as being the possibility of all things all at once, well, goodness gracious, what does anyone do with this? Um, so, yeah, so I guess, you know, um, but yet at the same time, I also think, you know, for Bergson, you know, precisely because, you know, he is arguing for that, you know, that this, that this, this does avail us of, if we attend to life, we attend, we, we access a truth that is, uh, we ex access a truth versus if we attend to matter, he's offering us a choice, right? Um, and I think, precisely because he is offering us this choice. It's hard to think of it in nihilistic terms, right? Because nihilism to me, um, and I might be wrong, you know, here, but when I think of nihilism, I do think of this as, um, as um, you know, a pursuit that if you, a pursuit that you go into knowing that you're never going to get it. With Bergson, I don't know if that's, I think he's there's a sincerity to him that is um, perhaps um, you know uh, the reason why you know he was like a philosophical rock star right you know and people picked him up in such a way that oh yeah yeah you know um, I could I could do this um, <laughs> I could I could creatively evolve in some way um, um, but um, yeah is is that which becomes which comes out of it say the the sorel uh lineage for france italy the ludwig klages lineage coming out uh, for it in in germany is that something that is like at what point is it structurally embedded in the in the concept itself no like if one if one positions the concept sort of as this kind of the popularity of it being that it's it 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 gives it gives european subjects a sense of place or a sense of uh um as you said no like even i could involve cre evolve creatively in in what is basically a large foundational crisis no so in this anti-mechanistic anti-rational realm which has a, a, a sort of a hard bedrock in the crisis of of all you know like reason basically you know uh, and standard dualist metaphysics uh, but also the what i'm you know the kind of boomerangs from an imperialism at its uh, greatest expansion no? sort of a, a sim boomerang symptom of the carpet being pulled because the projection into an exterior might not fully work anymore um then for me the question would be really you know like what is the tipping point here no like is it what because might it be that we can rescue a certain anti-modernism 
from this foundational crisis and from the context in which this kind of thought is positioned against its sort of, you know, what might be referred to fascist or ultra-nationalist or even just nationalist expropriation or appropriation. And if if so, how would you how would you describe that as an option? I mean, if if basically the, the 2030s were foreclosing that access in a kind of imperial racialized um, modernity, which had embraced like Sorel, basically violence as a creative uh, mythopoesis. Um, at what point would you have to go back in this foundational crisis to find a to, to unthink that that escalation or that that rehabilitation of something that has been basically the nihilism may be also a symptom of it, you know, the, the carpet being pulled epistemologically or uh, under the colonial uh, frontier like thinking. Yeah. No, that's no, that's a great question. I mean, honestly, it would make a great science fiction story. <laughs> How do you go back? No. And, you know, and and salvage this this moment, right? I think, you know, um, Ansem, you have a point. And that point is that, um, and this is a point that I'm, you know, basically trying to work out, which is that in this crisis, as you're pointing out, and I, and I, and this is probably where we're having, ah, and, and I, rather than nihilism, I, I'm thinking in terms of crisis. I mean, one of the things I'm really, fascinated by is, you know, um, again, a kind of genealogy of crisis from, it has a life foundation, right? Because it, you know, I think it's, uh, right now, uh, it's Kosolek who like refers to crisis as beginning with, um, you know, uh, as, a, as a term that's used to describe illness right um you know that moment when you know you could die or the moment where uh an illness takes a turn right um and then it becomes you know kind of it's transferred over into you know social uh to understand the social um actually he looks at it in the kind of classical period where it becomes a you know, crisis is a way of um, more or less indicating or pointing to locating a point in, you know, a state where, um, uh, you know, the kind of in its, its point of endurance, right? Because, you know, again, for them, progress isn't about moving forward. Progress is whether or not everything's just kind of stable. Um, uh, but a point where that stability is going to kind of collapse, right? So I think a crisis in the interwar years is really key because that crisis is like ultimately how, and you know, and I think it's different and I would like pull it away from like Foucault's like episteme. It's not just really about, you know, the emergence of a truth regime, but it's more or less about, you know, kind of soldering up as it were, um, uh, you know, all of these concepts to, to do a particular type of, you know, rhetorical work that 
as you're pointing out, with, you know, uh, you know, uh, with uh, duration or with, you know, life um, that, you know, it is going to reimagine Europe at the helm, right? The universal will still keep Europe at the center of the universal, right? Um, so even in its critique, right, um, its critique is going to nonetheless, and and again, one of the things that, you know, I'm kind of trying to work out my, you know, current work is that, you know, even, you know, in and with life, right, you have ultimately um, an understanding of, you know, life as you know being generative to a particular type of nationalist and very and, and even more and even more one could say um even more pointed you know uh particularism of nationalist and racial identity right it becomes mobilized in that way um and you know in so many ways it's like you know this is a period uh you know in the interwar years like you know europe is coming up to a huge crisis in terms of you know economic collapse, uh, paradig paradigmatic collapses, right? You know, the rise of, again, you know, of, um, of uh, you know, the colonized world. And life is being marshaled as one way to say, well, we have to kind of take hold of our barbaric forces in order to fight the barbarians out there, right? So we can't imagine the end of Europe, right? We can only imagine the destruction of Europe by the barbarian hordes of the colonized, right? Um, and so, yeah, so no, absolutely. I think that, you know, uh, yeah, in this respect, um, perhaps not nihilism, because I do think there's meaning here, <laughs> but definitely crisis, right? Um, you know, what is this crisis of, uh, you know, life, a, a crisis um, calls upon life to do what? To um, uh, to to um, to take its creative functions, but its creative functions in a very Sorelian way become an expression of you know a kind of a wanton um, you know violence that is necessary to preserve a particular type of identity, a particular European identity. So yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and in that sense, and you're right, I would say that, you know, um, theorizations of life, particularly in this period, are all made available for that, right? For that course. To take it even more to the local level, <laughs> to take it to a more local level, not just to this, the whole sort of German debate controversy from sort of uh, Ernst Bloch, George Lucas to to GDR uh, reception of, of yeah. basically what you could call the larger complex of both the reactionary German nationalism of the, you know, the ideas of uh, 1914 to the expressionist generation. Yes. Um, leaves right. you also with this kind of destruction of reason. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, I'm just, no, no, no. I'm just I wondering. Know, I, it's funny. <laughs> I mean, I'm just wondering. No, no, you know, no, no, like, 
in to the, the the degree to which it seems to me there's a real task also you know like to for us now and uh, um somehow to to not left with the with the dichotomies of or the the, the false binaries of that of how things have been turned topsy-turvy there and also in the sense that 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 deconstructing the racialization machine in the history of vitalism should not leave us with a kind of rationalism of the kind that consolidated as exactly. the critique of the expressionist generation in the GDR. Um, that's right. And that, that's right. That's right. And at the same time, we have to be sort of confronting this, the rise of this neo-vitalism, say digital vitalisms, the search for the transhuman Superman, as Anna named it. No, so, and it seems to me that there is something really crucial the, in this period, in this period of the foundational crisis, which I think one could reasonably argue is really starting around the 1880s uh, and has a certain form of uh, culmination uh, maybe in the in the interwar years uh, but but perhaps i mean the the first world war in a way is already its culmination you could argue probably yeah in that somehow yeah i wonder uh, you know like how you when when you are because i infer from this from the titles of your forthcoming work that you are dealing with say Oswald Spengler and all these fantasies that are very much alive again no like uh, i mean they are they're absolutely back in a in yeah no when i started the work it was you know in the very benign neoliberal years <laughs> when no one is thinking about this i thought oh well this is you know i you know wrote a book about life i'll write a book about historical pessimism you know the other side of it and you know, just think of them as a kind of twin volumes. Um, and you know, and this happens where I'm like, oh dear, goodness gracious, um, this is something. Uh, so so yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I was just wondering. I was just wanting to ask you about how you see it. Like you know, like say from it from this German history with that, like how this fed into how the irrational element actually was crucial for for the collectivization of the lie of the of the of the fascist lie basically um which would leave us in this kind of 20th century debate basically in in a frame of like enlightenment rationality versus the irrationalism of uh of the time right and that sort of that that cannot be taken further back somehow structurally than say the enlightenment right um i wonder what happens now if you if you look at if you if you apply a, a, pers a historical perspective of of 500 years say uh, with the whole question of colonialism property and and the long durée of racialization so something that goes beyond the enlightenment frame of the false binary that it establishes of the rational and the irrational. Yeah, Ooh, you're asking me to do something very big there, Anton. Um, yeah, no, but I think, no, uh, but I, I, I get your point. I mean, you know, there is something utterly maddening that we're back at this dichotomy of, you know, um, you know, uh, that ultimately, you know, uh, falls into the rise of an irrationalist post-truth, uh, you know, um, 
right and a kind of rationalist technocratic solution to the post-truth right um and where uh, race fits into this right uh and racialization fits into this right um and you know I think, I mean, there's ways, I mean, I I have a much easier time, you know, describing it, right? Because I think you're right. I mean, you know, certainly if we're thinking about this, this is, this is a dilemma that begins with the Enlightenment, right? Um, I'm reading, you know, if you read, you know, Hofstadter's, you know, the paranoid style of uh, politics, you know, we're back at the same juncture point that he describes, but we also are reproducing the precise problem with that work, right? I mean, for him, you know, the problem with the paranoid style of American politics is what you have is like, you know, from the Enlightenment to its irrational um, reaction, right? Which is to say that, you know, all of the movement against the Freemasons, you know, Masonists and, you know, America's in, you know, desire to kind of have a little hamlet of enlightenment in the new world, you know, its response is an irrational response. And that's why we have the John Bergers, right? He ignores, of course, right? Genocide of the American, of, uh, you know, Native Americans. He just ignores, you know, American slavery and, you know, the, you know, the equally as violent and irrationalist racialization of American uh, population, right? The John Birches for him are just simply what? They're, they're people who chafe at the idea that of that reason, um, you know, produces a kind of routinized and scrutinized world, right? You know, they, they just, they, they, they don't want that, right? And that is channeled into what? you know, their desire for kind of an, you know, an individualist, uh, you know, struggle against pretty much everything. Um, and yeah, so we're back there. We're back there. And I think the big pro, and I think that, you know, the first step, of course, is, you know, to look at and to confront, right, the, and to make center, right, um, empire, imperialism, and colonialism and in the context of the US slavery and Native American genocide at the center of this. Like this is not, and, and not in a mode that is just a kind of a triangulation between reason, irrationalism and that, right? That is to say that, you know, slavery and Native American genocide in the context of the US becomes, you know, the third thing, right? Or that it becomes yet another, or just simply gets subsumed under um, the kind of irrationalist element there, right? Um, we have to kind of, we have to, we have to begin there, right? Um, and to think about how these two poles were created, you know, in and through these, 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 these acts, these, these, uh, these foundational acts, right? Um, and in that sense, it brings us back to who's universal, because that is universalism, right? The universal is in fact tackling what is the, but at once the foundation of the universal, which is that the world is bought in via these acts of subsuming violence. 
Um, but as well, it's ordered to not, and I, you know, I won't use the word justification because again, that puts us on the side of the rational, right? Um, gives us a rationalization. Well, you know, we did this because, well, we had to, you know, this is the manner in which the slave trade, you know, hierarchized the world for blah, 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 and this is trade, et cetera, et cetera. It's, you know, we, you know, we, we actually have to, in a sense, begin there to unpick these, the logics that emerge from that, those acts, and then, you know, attend to uh, this dichotomy, which may not become a dichotomy at that point, right? I mean, I think that, you know, if one begins in these different locations that, you know, you know, um, we can see a collapse in these, that these, that frequently this, this dichotomy collapses, uh, um, you know, they are working together symbiotically. Exactly. And you can also... Yeah, so that that you end up somehow seeing how they working together exactly also in the in the way that you described it earlier for race um, the the natural science version pseudoscience of racism working together with the irrationality of the cosmogenic cosmogonic eros uh, and the embrace of violence how that somehow how this tandem might have worked actually to foreclose at the time of the foundational crisis the 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 colonial content of modernity yeah yeah and you know and it's fascinating i mean what i find foreclosed and displaced exactly foreclosed and replaced because what i find really fascinating about that period one of the reasons why i'm fixated on crisis is because crisis suspends and then leads once things are settled they are foreclosed. So, you know, what do we have following, you know, the uh, the interwar years? You know, um, you know, the um, 1956, is it, or the UNESCO, um, you know, um, a UNESCO declaration on race, right? Which is to say, that was bad. Let's not talk about this. No more. It's all gone. And so the post-war period is a period of, eh, right? So that you can get a work like Hofstadter's A Paranoid Style of American Politics, you know, which is just sort of like, eh, yeah, the Cold War. Ooh, ah, that's, <laughs> we don't deal with that, right? Um, and, uh, and, and then we can also have this moment that we're living in, right? Where we're all surprised that, um, you know, hey, this is, <laughs> haven't we heard this before? Well, yes, we did, because this has been with us. And one declaration by UNESCO is not getting rid of it by any stretch of the imagination, right? These, you know, our disciplines, our entire, you know, you know, kind of, you know, structure of knowledge has been, you know, uh, developed along these lines, um, you know, and um, we foreclosed the possibility of rethinking and adequately pointing to, well, uh, you know, what uh, to ultimately what was the, 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 you know, what was the conceptual violence, right? that went into the making 
of uh, of the post-war world, post-war world as well, right? I mean, you know, the proxy wars and, you know, every, every, every revelation of every Cold War thinker as being a completely, you know, diabolical, you know, racist, and, you know, who's like, you know, is completely internalized, uh, you know, the kind of imperialist, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of racial framework from, you know, Reagan to, you know, uh, to Nixon to everyone's like, oh my goodness, you know, we hear these tapes. I'm like, they, you know, he just, you know, like, why is anyone surprised? No one should be surprised, you know? Yeah, I think so. also this is a uh, question of the post-war order and how it relates to that pre-interwar and pre-war years is uh, really kind of crucial for the understanding of what surfaces right now as this kind of double foreclosure, no? like naturalization of nationalism and uh, after the war in this kind of, oh, we did bad, but let's be all happy nations now, just some have not yet lived up to and naturalization of modernization basically as a complete continuation of a corpse of imperialism basically. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, we're at a juncture now where, you know, we have to, again, really resist foreclosing this. Um, uh, you know, uh, we can't, um, you know, we can't uh, uh, um, fall back on um, a rather sloppy, you know, reiteration of, um, you know, a rationalist solution to the irrationalist outburst that is you know um that you know we we are you know kind of interpreting the contemporary right as um it's it's uh we do so at our peril for sure um um yeah and again i guess technology is a key here i think with um you know just um um you know the rise of um uh not necessarily we see this in like the post-human or the transhuman but the manner in you know just more or less the um uh in the kind of our algorithmic uh discourse that is right where you know we've sort of suspended you know uh um you know the you know whereas the function of propaganda and radios and you know um uh, and print technology in the interwar years served, uh, you know, the kind of uh, uh, the spread of, you know, prop uh, various propagandas. What we have now, of course, is you know, not, it's in the, not, uh, not just the internet, but I would say as well, just you know, kind of social media and the algorithms that kind of tweak, um, you know, uh, you know, what is, you know, what incites uh, people's attention, right? So that we've decided that, you know, um, you know extremist language and extremist thinking and you know you know what is again um i think uh, the catch-all phrase of conspiracy theories doesn't really get to it um you know um the type of um i think more like the creation of uh, alternate not even alternate but you know a unit a sort of um you know uh, a virtual reality of lies right this is the world that you want to see and we're going to more or less tell you well this is what it is and you get to live in this this world um and you get to create you know a belief system that you can then you know transfer into irl in real life so i think um you know casting that as irrational is 
you know, again, dangerous because we have to really, you know, in a very empirical way, you know, um, come up with new concepts that speak to what exactly that is, right? And what it's doing. Um, so the interwar years, I think is really fascinating because, you know, what we, this, this dichotomy is there. It's, it's in the making, it's coming out of a crisis. Um, you know, it presents a moment of, uh, it presents itself as a moment of critique. Um, and, and out of this presentation, we also, um, you know, experience, uh, you know, one could say, you know, the, you know, certainly, uh, you know, an extraordinary, uh, uh, in a historical, uh, you know, uh, moment of violent reaction, right? So this is, you know, um, it's, I'm, you know, it's a very, like I said, I'm quite a historicist, so it's a very, it's tied to uh, the period. Um, but um, I am thinking through, I cannot but think through what we're living through. And um, I hope, you know, in some ways that, um, you know, um, we can actually, in a sense, move beyond the conceptual framework that I'm trying to work with in this work and come up with adequate and, and really fine-tuned conceptual framework to deal with what we're do living through right now, you know. Um, so I feel like this is something of a postmortem of the interwar years, um, which will, you know, hopefully allow us to figure out, wait a second, okay, what's going on? What's going on here, right? Um, you know, uh, how are we, um, you know, uh, you know, how are we in a sense refining certain aspects, but, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, completely hear you on that. Um, I really look forward to more conversations. So this was our podcast um, uh, in our series, Who's Universal? Anna Teixeira Pinto and myself, Anselm Franke, we were talking to Donna Jones and hopefully we'll manage to see you next spring yeah, in Berlin. Yeah, thank you very much. Oh. It's my <laughs>